Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. If you guys would, go ahead and grab your seats. You can grab them and take them somewhere. That's fine by me, too. But grab your seats, and we're going to jump right in. Um, This is week six of this series, and as I shared with you, the first two legs of this series in Genesis are going to be six weeks long. Uh, But this one and probably the next one uh, are warranting a little bit more uh, personal kind of interaction. So at at the end of this uh, at the end of this series, this leg of the series, uh, next week we're going to do a Q&A. It's going to be a live Q&A. Everything that uh, you guys are thinking and, and pondering about this series, I encourage you to bring your questions. We're going to have some... Uh, we're going to have some note cards that you can fill out your question if you don't want anybody to know it's you asking the question. Um, based on the 30-plus uh, emails that I've already received, I don't think you guys have a problem being known, but, <laughs> but it is, uh, it's good. It's really good. I was sharing with the leadership team on Tuesday that e- at 30-plus emails, I've received zero negative emails. So that is a pretty awesome thing. It is not that people don't uh, disagree with me. (laughs) That's the stupidest thing ever, right? Of course people disagree. But it is that everybody is really adopting the principle that I'm trying to put down, and that is how to uh, still follow Jesus, holding different views, loving each other, and displaying or walking in unity. So uh, we're going to do a Q&A next week, and I encourage you guys to be here. I encourage you to have your questions ready. Uh, there will be a microphone, and you can always just ask them with your lovely face shining if that's what you'd like to do, okay? So that's next week. This week, we're jumping into the final piece of this, uh, which is the Imago Day or the image of God. I want to start by giving you a bit of a recap for some that haven't been here or some that have been hit and miss. Week one, we talked about an order of belief. This entire series uh, has been titled, titled Order and Man. Uh, And the objective of the whole series so far has been to display and to show that God is a God of order and that God is not only creating everything in his creation account in order, but even what he does in man and through man is supposed to be uh, a, a purpose to bring order into a disordered world. So order in man has been the title of this series and the first week was order and belief and we talked about the four types of knowing. If you weren't here these are really in, uh, interesting ideas. The first type of knowing is propositional knowing. That's knowing facts about things. The second type of knowing is procedural knowing. That's knowing how to do things. Uh, perspectival knowing is the third type of knowing. That's understanding how to view the world, and participatory knowing is understanding your place inside of the world. Now, the reason why this is so important is because we live in a culture that is obsessed with propositions. We think that we can know God through sheer propositions, but we can't. Uh, This is why people like Billy Graham and many other people that have good minds have said there is no way to prove by mathematical equation or any other way that God exists. Uh, Anybody who says that's selling you something, 
but instead there are ways to prove God exists through the other types of knowing. So whether that is procedural knowing, that is uh, as you walk out the truths of God's word, you see the truth in the person who gave that uh, truth, whether it's perspectival knowledge, and that is that God gives you a different perspective and you're able to see uh, maybe even revelatory things, divine things. Also participatory knowing. This is where the relationship with God comes in. It's an amazing thing how many people say, I don't know how to prove God, but I know that he is because I've walked with him, because he's talked to me. I know that that is, uh, sounds like fooey to the world, right? Uh, but it's not. It's not. I cannot, through propositions, prove to you uh, that my dad exists, per se. But I can show him to you. I can introduce you to him right? I can, I can get you to know my dad. I can also not prove through mathematics that my mom loves me, right? But I can show you her deeds throughout my life, and I can prove that she does, right? So there are all these types of knowing, and we talked about those four types of knowing. The truth is that every belief that we have is predicated on these four types of knowing. God called Peter to walk with him. He called him to participate with him. Then he changed his perspective. He showed him what he was lacking and what he needed. He then began to walk him through a life, as well as the other disciples, through procedural knowledge as well as propositions that Jesus gave. And in that knowing, Jesus, or Paul, or Peter comes to the belief, Christ, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He comes to a full knowledge of who Jesus is. We all can uh, walk in this as well. And this is what we're trying to invite the world into. We also talked about declining faith in America. And in one of the weeks, I shared with you some responses uh, that were pretty heart-wrenching, pretty hard for people to hear. But they are a true representative of this, uh, this culture, this skeptical culture. I quoted at the beginning of the series, this is how fascinating uh, times change so quickly. I quoted at the beginning of this series a Pew Research poll done in 2021 that showed that 71% of Americans, uh, adults, profess Christian belief. 71%. The 2022 poll was just released this week. And guess what that poll shows? Now that number is only 64%. In one year, church, 7% drop in one year. That's a pretty big deal. Why are things changing? Why are things changing? One of the reasons things are changing is because Christians aren't answering the questions the world is asking. The world is asking tough questions. And we keep answering with, well, Jesus loves you. Well, that's true. That's an awesome truth. But the reason why Barna Research Group uh, coins a phrase called syncretists and says that many people in the millennial and, uh, and younger generations are uh, trying to pull worldviews together in all kinds of different ways, Christian and Buddhist and Islam and all these other things, is because they're not receiving the answers from Christianity. This does not mean Christianity does not have the answers. It simply means that we're not good at giving those answers. We're not equipped to give those answers. And we need to do a better job, i.e., understanding Genesis rightly and being able to explain it to a, a world that's asking questions. Week two, we talked about the importance of philosophy, of theology, and what those together form, which is called worldview. Philosophy, 
Wisdom, the love of wisdom, and theology, a study of God. When we put those together, that's what, that's what begins to form what we call a worldview. Everybody has one. Everybody sees the world a certain way. And we see the world through the lens of how God says we're supposed to see it. Week three, we talked about the idea of multiple beginnings. So we zoomed in on Genesis 1-1, and we talked about the, the, the words that are there, the definite article, how the phrase is supposed to be understood, and we then can come away with Hebrew grammar on our side saying that Genesis 1-1 does not indicate that it has to be the beginning of all things. Why does that matter? Because science continues to push into our face the idea that the, that the cosmos is billions of years old. You look at this and you say, but Nathan, if you start to believe that, you're going to start to believe evolution. You're going to start to believe this and this and this and this. And you're going to go down. That's called slippery slope fallacy. You're wrong. <laughs> that's, all, that's as simple as it is. People don't have to follow every train of thought that comes down the pike. People can hold an idea and then say no to other ideas. We learned this last week when we realized that Martin Luther and John Calvin wanted to shut down the idea of a heliocentric universe because, well, fools in their generation have to make sense of something. Isn't that sad? You fools, you have to make sense of something. Well, I'm glad we listened to the fools and not to John Calvin or Martin Luther in that situation. So we talked about the idea of multiple beginnings. Then week four, we coupled that together and took, talked about the grammar of when God began to create the heavens and the earth. And so all of that plays together. Week five, we talked about the seven days of creation. We talked about this last week and the temple language that is located in those verses. How ancient minds would have understood the creation texts. And by the way, that was a zero in on perspectival knowing. And that is, how did the ancients understand the text? Not how do Americans understand the text. Not, do, not how do 21st century minds understand the text. That doesn't matter. What matters is how they understood the text so that we can accept their, their concepts and their ideas and see things from a slightly different perspective. I also shared the governing principle of our conversations here at Pierce Point Community Church. And that is that our conversations should be governed by Philea Sophia, the love of wisdom, and not Philea Nikea, the love of victory. If we're constantly wanting to be right all the time, guess what shuts down? Our ears. That's what happens. If you're obsessed with being right all the time, if you're obsessed with victory in the argument, your ears will stop working and you will constantly talk louder and try to prove your points. This is just what happens. Today, though, we're going to turn the corner and we're going to talk about the image of God, the Imago Dei. And I'm going to put, uh, the, this is going to put the mankind or the man in our title, Order and Man. We're going to look at what man is. So we're going to start this morning with a text from Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 26. The words will be on the screen. You can follow along there if you don't have your Bibles. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth. And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. 
God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I love this idea in this because not only do we see that God has created us in our image, but he's also created male and female in that image, which is going to speak to what the image is not in just a second. But it is very important for us to see that he created us in an image, and then he goes on to list ideas or functions uh, of what we are supposed to walk in. Okay, So the first thing that we're going to look at are the words that we use, image and likeness. Image and likeness. I'm going to throw up a bunch of quotes for you real quick. John Walton says this, The biblical writers left us many books, but a dictionary was not among them. Darn it. (laughs) It would have been awesome. That is, if you understand a dictionary the wrong way. But anyway, listen. But the dictionary was not among them. We, therefore, have to try to determine what the words mean. The methodology for such lexical study has been firmly established. Please stop there for a second. The understanding of terms has been firmly established. How? We're about to get into it. But please don't make the mistake of saying, no, terms mean what I want them to mean, and I don't care what you say. The definition of terms, the the understanding, the arrival of meaning over time is something that has been firmly established and is confirmed, he goes on to say, as sound based on what we all recognize about language and how it works. And here's the big truth. Words mean what they are used to mean. That's it. Words mean what they are used to mean. The next one is Dr. Michael Heiser. You've heard me quote this many times. Words don't mean anything. People mean things by words. Words don't mean anything. People mean things by words. And you can kind of see the the thing that he's playing with there, right? Referring to the phrases in our image and after our likeness, Nahum Sarna, commentator and translator for the Jewish Publication Society, he writes this. This unique combination of expressions in our image and after our likeness, virtually identical in meaning, emphasizes the incomparable nature of human beings and their special relationship to God, which is what we're talking about today. The full import of these terms can be grasped, listen to what he agrees with everybody else on, only within the broader context of biblical literature. What does he mean? You can only derive a meaning by what the authors meant it to be in their time, perspectival knowledge. You can't go to Webster's and figure out all these things. This is one of the great problems with things like amplified Bibles. They they give you three meanings for a particular word that they're trying to, to talk about. But there is a danger in it. And that is when you read something uh, in the beginning... Beginning, the start of all things, creation ex nihilo. If you read something like that, you are being fed ideas, but they may not be what the text says. And many times, they're not interchangeable. You can't just plug and play. Guess what, guys? The Bible and the words, not multiple choice. You don't get to put in anything you want. Okay? You understand that? So, he agrees with this idea. The full import of these terms can be grasped only within the broader context of biblical literature. And again, the background of an ancient Near Eastern analog. 
The next one, uh, this is to throw it way out in left field, uh, well-known atheist and philosopher Bertrand Russell said, dictionaries tell us nothing about the world except how words are used in that time, right? So this is why dictionaries change over time. I know we've been uh, dealing with this in the news and people are like, you can't go changing terms and can't go changing meanings. Everybody, take your political views, calm down a second, and know They've always changed over time. Dictionaries are living books. They've always changed over time. Does it mean that people are not really screwing with words and have political agendas? Of course they do. Of course they have agendas. But that doesn't mean dictionaries should stay the same because they never have, okay? So let me give you an example of this. Ancient Chinese proverb. I can't do that well. Anyway, ancient Chinese proverb, a hundred steps backwards are worth a thousand steps forward. Can somebody give me an idea of what that means? A hundred steps backwards are worth a thousand steps forwards. Hindsight. What else? Learning from the past. Guess what? You're wrong. You're wrong, and this is what's really amazing. I'm using those words. You know what those words mean in our culture. You would be right if I wrote that, but you would be wrong to hear them. A hundred steps backwards are worth a thousand steps forward. The Chinese walked backwards for knee health. It is a proven fact. A hundred steps backwards helps your knees better than a thousand steps forward. Huh, what they mean by those words? Not what you did. Isn't that weird? That is so strange, but it's, it, it's illustrative of this idea that we are a people who think words are static and they never change, but they do change. And when we start to think about image of God, we really have to understand words better, right? What is an image? I... I this, uh, before we talk about an image, it's really awesome. I've developed a really great relationship with Rich back there, and the other person who spoke was my father-in-law, and so I could tell them they were wrong, and they won't hate me. It's amazing. It's amazing. I'm not sure who else I could say that. Anyway, okay, <laughs> right? So, image or imago Dei, the image of God. This is a very important thing to define. Okay, Because I think we've really wrestled with this over years. But when we start to understand the true meaning of these words and how the ancients understood them, you're going to see creation and order and man and order, and you're going to see all of these things falling into place. The phrase image of God occurs several times in Genesis. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Genesis 5, 1 and 3. Genesis 9, 6. A close reading of the, of the passages in which the phrase occurs tells us that the image of God applies to both men and women, is never used of any other earthly creature, is never described as something given to humans, given to them. It is something that they are, but not something given to them, and is not incremental in nature i.e., it is not possessed partially or in stages. In other words, whatever the image of God means, it is immediately intrinsic to all human beings equally and distinguishes human beings from everything else in creation. Pretty powerful, isn't it? Right? 
Something about this is different. Something about this is going to make us jump for joy when we understand what it truly is. So let's start with what the image is not. Let's start there. The Imago Dei is not your appearance, and it is not your gender. You think, duh, I don't look anything like God. Well, the reason why it's really important to understand this is because our iterations of God, like our um, you know, European forms of Jesus, right? all of these things are just us trying to read ourselves into who God is. That's what we do. Who was Jesus when he walked the earth? He was a Jew. Most likely, according to the scripture, I know he was taller than most Jews, but taller than most Jews is not tall. Okay, so he was, he was a taller guy, according to prophecy, but the idea still is he's a Jewish guy. Most likely, Jesus had curly hair and a real kinky beard. Okay, just saying. Trust me, I know this firsthand. When this grows out, not only do I look, you're bald, Mark, it's okay. Anyway, so um, not only do I look like my dad, but when I shave my beard after that, I use all the shavings as a Brillo pad at home. Anyway, so, so it's real kinky, it's real coarse, right? But this is, how, this is how the Jewish appearance is. That's what Jesus would have looked like. But does that mean that's what God looks like? No. But Nathan, what about the passage that says that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father? We'll get to that in just a second. It's not our appearance, and it's not our gender. With regard to appearance, the Bible is filled with what is called anthropomorphic language. It is language that communicates something for you to understand. God's mighty right arm, right? God's eye is upon you, or whatever it might be. Does God have an eye? Does God have a right arm? I don't know. But the point is, you wouldn't understand it if it didn't say it was like this or like that. You should read the book of Revelation, you'll see a lot of this too. The book of Revelation is fascinating with all these weird, crazy creatures, and all they do is say, it's like a head of a lion and a dragon and a this and a that. That's all. We're just going with what we know. We're just going with what we know. That's the best we can do because we have to try to associate and understand things, right? Anthropomorphic language describes God, but that does not mean we are like him. So uh, in the Renaissance, when we have the old man in the sky with his white flowy beard and all this other stuff, this is not what God looks like. But this is the way we read into things. We read ourselves into the character of God. So number one, it's not our appearance. Number two, it's not our gender. Do you know that the Bible talks of God as a man? That's great. But when it says that you were made in his image, male and female were created in his image, we obviously don't mean to apply, imply a, a male image or a female image. It's not there. That's not the point, right? There's something bigger with the image of God that he gave to us that is intrinsic to all people, okay? So when we get into these gender arguments and all this other stuff about changing the Bible to gender-neutral language, it's just a waste of time. Why? Because it fundamentally misunderstands language. Second, it fundamentally misunderstands what the Imago Dei is. It's not about a gender. But you do possess it. If you're a man or if you're a woman, you possess it. It's not also about our attributes. Number two, it's not our attributes. All of the following have been uh, proposed by theologians as identifications of the image of God. Intelligence, rationality, emotions, 
volition, will, consciousness, self-awareness or sentience, and the ability to communicate or even pray. These attributes are all dependent on something. They're dependent on brain function. We have a problem if that is the image of God. They are not possessed immediately by all humans. Okay? Do you know that? Rationality doesn't come out of a baby out of the womb. Trust me, I've had four of them. They're still not rational now, right? But the idea is it doesn't come. It, that would come with stages. And what do we know about the image of God? I said it before. It is given or it is, it is instilled in us. It is how we are made, not a gift that would be given over time or developed over time. So, number two is that it is not our attributes. It is not your intelligence. It is not rationality. It is not your emotions. It is not the ability to choose things or consciousness or self-awareness, right? It is none of those things. In addition, the image of God is also not the possession of a soul or spirit. Uh Uh-oh. It's not the possession of a solar spirit. This view is actually undermined by the biblical text itself. The terms nefesh and ruach, often translated soul and spirit respectively, are actually not separate things since the biblical text uses both terms interchangeably to describe conscious life, the seat of human emotions, intellect, disposition, and inner life of our minds. And we've already said those aren't what the image of God is. Right? The breath of God, something that is given to human beings. It's also something that apparently every living beast has. Right? This is not what the image of God is. So, that's, that's a lot, right? That's what the image of God is not. I'm not going to spend all day just keep going down lists of what it's not. I want to tell you what it is. And then I want to prove that point. It is, however, the image of God, the Imago Dei, is... Our status as representatives of God. Our status as representatives of God. Let me read you something John Walton wrote here. Throughout the ancient Near East, it is usually the king who is seen as representing the image of God. In an image, it was not physical likeness that was important, but a more abstract, idealized representation of identity relating to the office or the role and the value connected to the particular image. Okay? So a king was the image of God. And this is attested to uh, on many, many occasions. This person is the, is the image of God. This person is the likeness of God. We'll get into a couple of those in just a second. But it is important to realize that it is something more abstract, something more idealized as a represent, representation of identity relating to the office or the role. Other uses of image. In both Egyptian and Mesopotamia, the idol contained the image of a deity. This allowed the image to possess the attributes of the deity, functioning as a mediator of worship to the deity. This is all in an idol, by the way. Okay, Functioning as a mediator of worship to the deity and serve as an indicator of the presence of that particular deity. Another reflection, the image uh, of a king was considered to be present in monuments set up in territories that he had conquered. So you put all these images around and that said, this is my, this is my place. And it was a marker that said, don't mess with it, right? 
because it embodied the, that, very, uh, that, very, that very God, that very Caesar, that very leader, right? So John 14, 9 says this. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you do not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? What is Jesus actually saying when he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? God is Eastern European. No, that's not what he's saying. God is a curly-headed Jew with a funny beard. No, that's not what he's saying. Instead, when he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Everything I have done has come from the Father. I do what he says, my actions, my representation in the world. You know what the Father is because what? I've healed the sick, raised the dead, cast out demons, right? The gospel is preached to the poor. This is why Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Guess what you then can uh, uh, retroactively understand? You can understand the will of the Father. Just look at what Jesus did. Everything Jesus did is the will of the Father. If he wanted to heal, if he wanted to raise the dead, if he wanted to cast out demons, if he wanted to do all these things, that's God's will. Now, you know, I've talked about this a thousand times, what is God's will in a moment? I don't know, but I'm telling you that God is the God of healing. God is the God of resurrection. God is the God of peace. That's an amazing truth, isn't it? 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. What did we just learn about these idols set up in the image of the deity and what they functioned as? Mediators of worship to the deity. Why does Timothy, why does Paul say to Timothy that Jesus is the mediator between God and men? Because he is the one through which that worship and that communication flows. Isn't that amazing? It's the same thing happening over and over. Genesis 5, 1 through 3 says this. This is the book of the, the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man, Adam, in the day when they were created. It goes on to introduce a, a very challenging idea next, uh, which we would have to parallel with chapter 9 of Genesis, and we would have to look through the rest of Scripture at. But it goes on to say, when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness. So what does that mean? It seems to indicate that if, if Adam was created in the likeness of God, that Seth was created in the likeness of Adam, but likeness means function. Likeness means representation. And so that actually jives with everything we've talked about, doesn't it? It's his representative. Just like your children are your representatives, on down the line, okay? Now, there's some challenges in that, and that is, where does born again come in? Are, is everybody on the planet an image bearer? Uh, when do we become image bearers if we're not? But there's a lot to those kinds of things. We go on, and we read that... Uh, we read this in Misinterpreting Genesis. We are told that Adam and Eve were, the work, were to work and to keep the garden. Work and keep the garden. Remember this from last week? These same two Hebrew verbs are only used together elsewhere to describe the job and obligations of the priest who kept the tabernacle and later the temple. Now let me connect a weird dot for you. They were the same 
language, same language, so we're talking about to work and to keep, also to be priests within the temple, and the seven days of creation are temple language because God was ordering a temple and he put priests in place of it, right? But he put not just any priest, he didn't just put a donkey in there, see what happened, right? He didn't put anything, he put his image bearers. But what were those image bearers called to do? Work and keep, be priests, be kings, be queens of this world. That's what he has called us to do. So when we start to understand the Imago Dei differently, it's not our, it's not our you know, appearance, it's not our gender, it's not some sort of attribute about us. Last I checked, nobody here is omniscient, right? Just making sure, yeah. You can zip it, okay? <laughs> yeah. Omniscient. How omniscient were you when Peyton ran out of the door? Oh, I'm just messing with you. There was a, there was a fun clotheslining incident at, uh, at youth group, and Dylan comes to me and he goes, I told them not to tell you that I would tell you myself that one of the kids got clotheslined. I said, Dylan, did you think I would be mad? He's like, well, I didn't know. I said, I teach the church jujitsu on Monday nights. Did you think I would actually be mad? <laughs> right? Like, clothesline them again. See what happens. Anyway, so, so it's really important. We, we are not the attributes of God. We don't have all those things. But what we do have, what we do have, is the ability to represent our God into the world. Adam and Eve were made to do a job. What did Adam and Eve do? They messed it up. They failed that job. The Israelites were made to do this job. What did they do? They messed it up. The church is made to do this job. What will we do? Not mess it up, Dylan. <laughs> Let's fight to not mess it up, right? This is the whole point of why we hold each other accountable, why we're calling each other to righteousness and holiness and all these other things. It is because we are set-apart people on mission to a lost and dying world. That's our job. That's what it means to be the image bearer. So, if it means to function the way God has called us to function as image bearers, and one of those functions, and I'm really trying to be light and soft here, but I want to punch in the nose. If one of those functions is to go into all the world and preach the gospel, and we're not doing it, what are we not doing? We're not being image bearers. We're not imaging God. What were you made to do? Image God. You were made to do the work of an evangelist. You were made to do the work of the king. You were made to be kings and priests. That's your job. See, the problem with the church not doing her job is not a matter of, well, God's mad at you. You didn't do your job, so he's waiting for you to, 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 to slap you on the wrist or something like this. That's not what this is about. The reason why it's very sad or pitiful that we are not imaging God when we need to is because we're the only ones given the job. We're the only ones given the job. If we don't do it, nobody else is going to. Well, I suppose the Bible would correct us, Jesus would correct us, and say, if we don't do it, he'll make the rocks cry out in your place. That's not good. That's not what we should want. 
we should want to be these particular imagers. I'm going to read you a a long excerpt here, uh, and it is uh, from someone that I've already quoted, Nahum Sarna. But I want you to hear something amazing about your role in this, because many of us look at it and say, but that's not my call, Nathan. I'm not supposed to do this. You'll see differently in just a second. The continuation of verse 26 in Genesis establishes an evident connection between resemblance to God and sovereignty over the earth's resources. So, subdue the world, right? Though it is not made clear whether man has power over nature as a result of his being like God or whether that power constitutes the very essence of the similarity. In other words, are you similar or are you actually full on what God can do? I think it's more along the lines that we're similar. He goes on later and says the phrase in the image of God conveys something about the nature of the human being as opposed to the animal kingdom. It also asserts human dominance over nature. But it is even more than this. The words used here to convey these ideas can be better understood in light of a phenomenon registered in both Mesopotamia and Egypt, whereby the ruling monarch is described as the image or likeness of God. Now, I'm just going to stop there and say, if I'm connecting these as one-to-one, as Sarna is doing, as Walton does, as many others do, Heiser and many others. If we're connecting them one-to-one, and we hear that in Mesopotamia and Egypt, that a monarch, that a king, would be described as the image and the likeness of God, and you are described as having the image and likeness of God, what does that say in reverse? You are what? Kings. You are queens. You are monarchs. That's the point of this. But I'm getting, I'm getting somewhere further. In Mesopotamia, we find the following salutations. Quote, the father of my Lord, the king, is the very image of Bel. Selam, Bel. Uh, and the king, my Lord, is the very image of Bel. The king, Lord uh, of the lands, is the image of Shemash. End quote. Another quote, O king of the inhabited world, you are the image of Marduk, end quote. In Egypt, the same concept is expressed through the name Tutankhamun. It's Tut Ankh Amun, which means the living image of the god Amun. And in the, desi- in the designation of uh, Tutmos IV as the likeness of Re, okay? But here's where it gets really fun. Likeness of God, likeness of God, likeness of God for kings and priests. You are in the likeness of God. You are kings and priests. And then look at this. Without doubt, the terminology employed in Genesis 2.26 is derived from regal vocabulary which serves to elevate the king above the ordinary run of men. We are not ordinary. And then look at what he says next. In the Bible, this idea has become democratized. What? What does that mean? Listen. All human beings are created, quote, in the image of God. Each person bears the stamp of royalty. This was patently understood by the author of Psalm 8, cited above, his description of man in royal terms, in his interpretation of the concept of the image of God. This is really important because it's introduced in verse 26 of Genesis 1. You and I are not looking like God necessarily. Because that's not what the word meant to them. You and I don't have the same attributes of God. He's more infinite than you are. 
but you and I have the same exact purpose and function, which is to bring order to chaos. We do that through working with our hands. We do that through our vocations. We do that through promoting the gospel, preaching the gospel in all the world. This is our call. And it's been democratized. Nathan the preacher is not the Imago Dei. You are. I am. We are. And when we understand this, we get to go into the world and we actually get to take that light and take that image into everything. And we get to change the world around us. To defy it, to disobey it, is actually, in some sense, to defame the image. In some sense, it's to defame the image. Because you're not doing what God says you're supposed to be doing. All of us are called to this. So, this whole six-week series has been about order and man. God, from nothing, or from that which was welter and waste, right, creates what? He creates the earth in all its glory. But do you know what God doesn't do even according to Genesis? He doesn't create the earth like he did the sun. The sun is perfect and done. It shines light. It's over. God creates the earth and tells us to subdue it. Why did he create it imperfect? By the way, that just goes to prove another thing about multiple beginnings. God often creates something not perfect so that it can be changed and shaped. Why does he create it for us to subdue? Because the God of order has called his image bearers to be image bearers of order. That's your job. That's what you do. All of us are called to this, church. All of us are called to this. And when we catch this and when we take this seriously, we will be honoring and praising God in everything we do. Okay? So the first leg of this series is done. We've talked about order and we've talked about man. Everything up to this point is awesome. And when we begin the second series, it all goes to crap, okay? This is that quick, right? You guys are awesome. Now we suck, okay? So we're, we're dealing with what we're called to do. We already know the end of the story, though. We know that Jesus came. We know that you and I, we get to be born again. We know that we are imagers. We know that we have a job and a task. So even though we're going to look back at the past and understand what we screwed up and how deeply we screwed it up, we're going to keep doing our job now because Jesus redeemed it. Amen? Jesus fixed it. Amen? Are we here? Okay, good right? Jesus fixed it. We're looking back to find explanations and understanding to give to a skeptical world. And when we do it, by the way, we're simply subduing the world. We're simply doing the job that we were made to do, bringing order out of chaos. And right now, there's more chaos than ever before. So we have an opportunity to do this job. Amen?